Hallelujah. Sit down, Brent. So tonight, we are covering chapters Just a little bit. Every once in a while, we have to be kind to our faithful reader of the scroll. So, Linton, you will go to verse chapter 23. We're going to pick up line by line like we would normally. I'm there, brother. Hold on one second. Ben, will you pray for us? covering for somewhere like a year and a half on the life of David. Wow. A year and a half, something like that, on the life of David from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and into Chronicles. Have you guys had a good time with that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We have been covering David's life for so long because he typifies Christ in so many ways. Yep. Ezra sees it fit right here in Chronicles to kind of skip over a lot of things and in one verse, start talking about the transition to Solomon. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Ezra is summing up a lot in one verse. This is the transition between David's story and the beginning of Solomon's story. For those of you that have been with us for the year and something months that we've been covering David, this is a tremendous point. And it brings to mind so many things that Ezra did not record about all the insurrections and things that David's sons did. None of that is recorded here. It's omitted. And automatically we're going into Solomon's life. Ezra is bringing this story to a focal point, And we're going to see very clearly what Ezra wants us to get tonight. David looks like he's done at this point. It says that he is old and full of years. You remember some of the supporting passages in Samuel where David was so old that he had to have somebody come warm him up at night because he couldn't do that on his own. At this point, David is very old and he can't do much. He is so old, he can't carry anything. He can no longer kill giants. But you know what he can do? He has a revelation that he can pass on to his son. Amen. He still had revelation that no one else had. 
David had revelation on the temple of the Lord and how it would be built. That's something we need to hone in tonight. Age does not determine whatsoever your importance to the body of Christ. Just because you can't do the work like you used to in your younger age, it doesn't determine your importance to the body of Christ. David has something here that Solomon and no other man on the planet has, and that's revelation from God, how to build God's plans on the earth. He is still capable of seeing into the heavens. Man, that's good news, right? One day you're going to lose your strength. One day you're going to lose all the beauty that you've been working for 20 and 30 years to try to cultivate that outer beauty. But you're going to lose it. One thing that you will always keep is the revelation that God has given you. Amen. And David still has that revelation. Amen. He is still capable of seeing into the heavens. Solomon had the strength and wisdom, but it was dependent on his father's revelation. There again is the symbiotic relationship between fathers and sons. The son here is about to do something in the coming chapters that David cannot do because he doesn't have the strength. To fully understand what we are going to learn in chapters 23 through 25 tonight, we need to know the background to the revelation that David had. That is the revelation about the temple. You guys want to hear the background of that? So like we mentioned earlier, we are going to be running at a flying pace. There are also other areas we're going to sit and camp on for a little bit. The revelation that David had sets the stage for every other thing that we are going to read tonight. And tell you a little secret. We're not just going to read about another man's revelation. We're going to learn to walk in a greater revelation tonight. We're going to hand out some passages out of the Psalms. If uh, you guys will raise your hands, we'll start picking and handing them out. Caleb, if you get Psalm 50, 18 through 19. Nick, if you get Psalm 5, 7. Rosales. Brandon, Psalm 11, 4. Nick Aragina, Psalm 18, 6. Then uh, go ahead and hand out one more. Leslie, if you get First Chronicles 28, 11 through 13. Psalm 50, 18 through 19. 51. 51, 18 through 19. Turn the page. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Saints, we're about to build a picture. David has been writing psalms for quite some time. And in fact, the vast majority of everyone that he ever wrote was before the construction of the temple was even started. Before we have materials laid up. Before his son is commissioned to do so. Here we have the Davidic king speaking about a day that Jerusalem's walls are built up and that in context in the same city there are righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings that you delight in and bulls offered on his altar. After David stumbled with Bathsheba he cries out for Jerusalem to be built up. He knew that it would result in an altar that sacrifices would be made on that would usher in atonement for him and his people. Let's continue to look at this in this next psalm. Psalm 5-7. Who has it? Psalm 5-7. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You who hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful. 
Psalm 5, verse 7. But I, by your great love, can comfort to your house. In reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. Now, this is incredible. David knew that a temple would be built in Jerusalem. Where, where is the tabernacle when, when David is building this? Well, it's somewhere in Shiloh. It's somewhere in Gibeon. It's somewhere else. But he knew after he sinned with Bathsheba that there would be a temple in Jerusalem. And he knew that once those walls of Jerusalem were built up, then there would be a place where sacrifices are, altered, are offered. In Psalm 5, verse 7, he's saying, I will come into your house. Well, what did God tell David? He said, I haven't dwelt in a house before. I've never dwelt in a house since the day your ancestors came out of Egypt. David knew that God would have a house one day. And he knew that he would have a holy temple that he will bow down. He knew that it would be on earth. The question is, is how did David know that? Was it just something that popped up into his mind or was it previous revelation? We're going to answer that. Who's got Psalm 11, verse 4? Psalm 11, 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly Alright, so is this just tribal knowledge? Is this folklore? So they all seem to have some understanding of what the throne looks like, what the temple looks like, long before there ever was a temple on the earth. David is describing something in Psalms that are writing that have prophetic elements all the way through. Where he's speaking about one day something is going to happen. I can see now that the Lord is sitting on his throne in his holy temple. And that he's watching the sons of men. That he's engaged. That he has a plan. That he has a structure. That he has a kingdom. That he has a strategy. And one day it will come to earth. Now he may not have known all of the details. He may not have had the same revelation that we do. Sitting with a completed Tanakh. But he did know that God was going to do something. He had a vision that was from the heavens. And he knew about the character of his God. As well as what his temple and his throne room looked like. That's unique. You don't see this written about all over the place. You will not find many biblical writers who demonstrated a clear understanding of what was in the heavens. And in the prior passage, he said, I will bow down towards it. That he believed it was possible that in his day and time, it might be realized upon the earth. Who is Psalm 18.6? This is my favorite. I do. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. Come on. From his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Man, it's pretty safe to say that David had an extraordinary revelation, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I were to ask anybody in the room, where does God dwell? Uh, what kind of answer would we get? Well, he, his glory fills the earth. Uh, he's in the highest heavens, but the highest heavens can't contain them. I mean, it's a pretty complicated answer. David knew that God had a temple in the heavens and that a pattern would be built on the earth. Come on. The question is, is how did he get that, get that revelation? That is the huge question for us tonight, is how did he get that revelation? Because you're going to see that it, there is an importance on how you get revelation. Oftentimes, it's not just something that pops into your mind. Oftentimes, it's something that is passed on to you. And we're going to read 1 Chronicles 28, verse 11 through 14, and we're going to dig into this a little bit. Read it loud and proud for us. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms. 
for the treasuries of the temple of God and for the treasuries for the dedicated things. He gave him instructions for the divisions of the priests and Levites. Visions. And for all work of serving in the temple of the Lord, as well as for all the articles to be used in the service. All right. Yeah, that's great. Saints, this is one of those things that is just so easy to read over. Like, you can just be rolling through the passage and not realize the implications here. The knowledge and depth of insight into the word that is required for a king that is from Judah to know what their service, what their divisions, what their duties should look like. He's a man who knew the scripture and had spent time studying the scripture. Had the scripture working in his life to where he knew exactly how to organize God's people and organize the priesthood that represent God. Anybody say that's a bit of a scary task? Saints, the the longer that I've lived, the the less I'm looking to be responsible for anything else. This is a holy task. And the man had to be intimately familiar with what God had already spoken. Then we have this verse that the Spirit had put in his mind. Saints, we're all charismatic, so what I think about when I hear that is he had a sudden vision and it all flashed before him. When I hear that, I think about, oh, poof, the spirit did it, like mountain be removed, you know, uh, fall into the sea. There's an awful lot more going on behind the text. A few of you are familiar with that teaching, but I imagine that the majority of you haven't spent a great deal of time working through how he garnered that revelation. The reason that we want to go through it is that it shows us how Solomon is able to operate. How from a father to a son, revelation is passed. How a father garners revelation for his wife, for his children, for his home. How we increase in the plans and designs that God has given us to build on this earth. Do you want to build something for his name this evening? We're going to need to have the depth of insight into the word and relationship with the spirit that David had so that we might build the kingdom of God on earth. We have a slide coming up that we'd like to take a look at. That he had by the Spirit, as Samuel the seer showed him, as is written above in 1 Samuel 9, 22. It goes on to say, and he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, at now, the Ramah, they were engaged in the building of the world. That refers to the temple. In the rabbinical mind, in Jewish culture, when you want to talk about building the temple, they had a euphemism for it, that they were building the world. Why? Because the whole world hinges upon his throne and his temple. That we are standing, breathing, taking our very breath from his will, from his authority and throne, and from his presence inside of his temple. It goes on to say, and he taught him at that time what a faithful student cannot learn, in many years. Wow. We're going to go into several scriptures that describe how this went about, but we want to start out by saying, yes, it was the Spirit. Yes, it was the Word. And yes, God had to breathe on the whole thing to cause it to come about. Amen. Saints, if you feel frustrated in discipleship, frustrated in your study of the Word, you feel as if you've missed too much time to be able to catch up, I want to tell you tonight what anointed discipleship and God breathing upon your study can do in a very short amount of time. Thanks. In a very worldly, practical example, we're, he and I, Daniel, Mr. Lawhon, are responsible for building a little bitty restaurant. It is about 80 pages of blueprints. This is one of the most intricate structures that has ever existed on the earth. 
How on earth would you learn that? Like, just download it. Just have it. This is something that God had to breathe upon and anoint a man to do it. Does anybody want anointing from God to do it? I need his help to build his kingdom. I need his help to be able to accomplish his work. 1 Chronicles 9.22 is something we're going to hand out. Who wants to take that? Rob, 1 Chronicles 9.22. Then uh, Nolan, 1 Samuel 19.18-22. We'll stop there. 1 Chronicles 9.22. Altogether, those chosen to be gatekeepers at the threshold numbered 212. They were registered by genealogy in their villages. The gatekeepers had been assigned to their positions of trust by David and Samuel the Seer. Oh, interesting. They were assigned to their positions by David and Samuel the Seer. Well, how could Samuel the Seer assign anything if he's dead? Long dead. He is long dead, and David's the only one there. How could they both assign anything if not both of them are standing? It's because Samuel and David worked together in those plans but it's not the working together that you would think of like they sat down at a table and they assigned positions. It's the kind of working together like discipleship happens. See, the plans came from Samuel and he discipled David into what David would grow up and become. There's something interesting here, here for you, but think about what came before Samuel and David. Right? There was a failed priest and a failed king. And then God renewed those positions with a new priest, a new seer, a new prophet, and a new king. Come on. And the prophet discipled the king on how to build what he was supposed to build. Amen. David had an incredible revelation, but he didn't get it from a vacuum. He wasn't at an altar on a Wednesday night, and all of a sudden just all these plans popped into his mind. And he said, hey, pastor, hey, I got, I got this thing to do, and I got three scriptures that's going to prove it. That's not what he did. This plan came from discipleship. He didn't receive it in a dream or a vision. In fact, what Rashi's saying is that it was so complicated, a student couldn't learn that in many years. And yet David, anointed, David was anointed to learn this from Samuel. Yeah. It was not received in a dream or a vision. This was not a new revelation. And it was not easy to grasp. This was not just something all of a sudden new. We need to grasp that tonight because we're always looking for new revelations all the time. We all want to find something new, something new, something new. And this was not a new revelation. David needed the help of Samuel to get this revelation. Amen. Come on, how important is it for your discipleship? You will not get a genuine revelation from the Lord unless it is through discipleship, unless it is through the help of a Samuel in your life or the help of the Spirit working with a Samuel in your life. That is how you get genuine relationship. It is not formed in a vacuum. Amen. Somebody say word. word. Somebody say spirit. Spirit, spirit breed discipleship. <laughs> Revelations are built. They're cultivated. They're the kind of thing that in a moment you may have something click that you finally understand. But I promise you it wasn't just that one moment that you realized it. It was all of the other study, other God breathed discipleship that helped you to be even be able to see it. If our last six week series hasn't proven <laughs> that, I don't know what would. There is almost no new element of what we've been teaching, but it's being connected in a way that we finally understand as a whole unit. Man, when you can start to see the big picture, it encourages you. 
working on a puzzle, you're working on a task, and you're not sure how all of these pieces fit, but you know you have to do something with them. Yeah. The moment that you begin to get the vision of what God is doing, what he's doing through you, it breathes life. Who has 1 Samuel 19, 18 through 22? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that, Samuel, uh, all that Saul had done to him. He, then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. Come on. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Pause there for just a minute. When they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel. Keep going. Wow. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also <laughs> prophesied. Stubborn. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. St. Samuel is where the school of prophets comes from. That later we have Gad, that we have Nathan, that we have the men that David works in close conjunction with while he's lining out things for the temple, when he's making decisions, when he's asking God to show him what to do. He's working with disciples of Samuel. You know, but Samuel wasn't just a prophet. There are many prophets in scripture of different origins. Samuel was also a Levite. Imagine that. God raised up a Levitical prophet wow. to then pastor and disciple a king from the tribe of Judah who would then have to build the temple that the Levites would operate in. See, God already has what you need prepared. He has it in this church body. He has it in his word, in his scripture. All that we need to do is take full advantage of what he's giving us. You have been gifted with all. That's not to put us down. That's to cause us to realize how much we really have. What we really need is the word and the spirit and to operate in discipleship well because it will prepare you to do things that your discipler never knew was possible, that your grandfather never knew what was possible. See, David now had an understanding, a revelation, spending time in the word of God and with the prophets that allowed him to set to work, putting something into motion that was bigger than even him, that his son is now taking on the challenge of. Now think back of some of those similarities that I mentioned between Samuel and David. Samuel was a Levite who replaced a wicked priest and judge. You know who that is? Eli. Samuel replaced that man and he became the judge of Israel. Come on. David was a shepherd who replaced the wicked and rebellious king of Israel. He would become the king that God wanted. These two had very similar situations, didn't they? You know what's interesting about that? I doubt that they just went up to each other and and said, hey, we should spend time together because we're alike. You know, Samuel was not known for letting sin slide, was he? <laughs> no. no. I'm sure what drew them close to each other is that they wanted to achieve what God had for, had for their lives. They realized that where they came from was Sheol and Saul, and they wanted to do something for the Lord. And that's what drew them together. Amen. Both of these men became pivotal figures in God's plan for the nation, but they both had to wait patiently for God's timing under not so favorable circumstances. I mean, how long was Samuel with Eli? How many times did Eli do something like let the ark of God go over to the Philistines 
And Samuel's like, you know, I could probably do a better job managing that. <laughs> How many times do you think David is wondering whether or not he's going to die when Saul picks up a spear? Both of these men did not reach out with their own hand and take their position for themselves. Oh, come on. They waited on God's timing. There is a much larger picture at play that we're getting to tonight, but we want to stop and note that all of this hinges on the ability to allow God to work through us to make us the kings we are destined to be. We want to share that. We want to embrace that. He will not allow us to become kings before our time. Both of these men show us what's possible if you wait and endure through the timing that God sets for you. If you do not reach out for yourself and say, you know what, now's the time I'm just going to go. You know how many people we've seen that have thought it is their time to leave here and go minister, and yet it is not God's timing at all. And then they do not continue in what they set out to. These men both waited. We are waiting on what God has for us as a church, no matter what the situation is, no matter how painful it is. Both, because both of these men were forged in the same fire, it allowed them to work to bring God's plan that he intended to execute on the earth. Samuel was brought up by the Lord first through this process, and he passed on to David what he had received from those before him. Come on. David had revelation that he got from Samuel. And he didn't just get the revelation. He furthered it. Amen. He didn't just get what Samuel had. He took it and actually started putting it to use. Now, of course, this revelation goes a lot back further than Samuel. We want to take a step back and we want to recap a few major points in our story. You guys want to do that? Yeah. Amen. Judah, tell us the summary of our story in the beginning of the first book of the Bible. Saints, over the last few weeks, we've covered so many different topics, but we want to remind you of some of the principles that have already led up to this. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the heavens and the earth that were created. Job speaks of the stars singing during the uh, creation of the earth and the laying of its foundation, is how it says. Genesis 3, mankind falls to temptation, and the promise was given to the seed of man that he would crush the enemy. So we have a satanic scheme in Genesis 3 that results in our fall and warfare declared. That there is a day coming when that serpent's head will be crushed under the foot of a man. In Genesis 6, we have an angelic defection with hybrid offspring that are as a result. Job 15.15 tells us that the heavens are not pure. We have yet again interference from above on the earth creating a type of rebellion against God. In Genesis 9 through 11, after we have a rebellion of mankind that is a little different than Genesis 6, we have man coming together saying, we want to reach to the highest heavens and be like the gods. We want to be in control. We don't want to spread out. We want to do what we want to do. The nations were divided with each to its own lesser God. Almost like demonic powers, demonic's not even the right word, malicious powers have been working and working to make man in their image instead of our image. There's a battle and a tension that has been at play between reprobate powers in the heavens wanting the earth to reflect it and the almighty God that knows his people will reflect him in the end. So we roll forward to Genesis 15. We have the birth of a promise of one nation that God would use to show the earth and the heavens Amen. God's power on earth. 
Genesis 46 through 49, we have that one nation that goes into Egypt, preserves them from famine, and as we know, shortly thereafter, is put into captivity. In Genesis 49, we have the declaration of a ruler coming. Later, it specified that it would be specifically through the house of David. But that revelation was spoken while they were in Egypt. It was spoken in the midst of another nation. Mm. While disaster is looming, while the gods of Egypt have a plan for God's people that is not a good one. But the Lord is aware of that in advance. And in Exodus 19, God has brought out his divisions, his divisions from the enemy's power. And he brings them to Sinai and gives Moses a revelation. Amen. Later, there are details specified in Exodus 25 about a pattern in the heavens that Moses works down. Yeah. So if you bear in mind when we're reading this, and you take it along with the other concepts that we have, we have a God who is good, who is just, who made you and me in his image, and heavenly powers that have been trying to make you in their image the entire time. We have a people that are put in slavery and almost cut off, and God delivers his divisions. He pulls them out by his mighty right hand, and he judges the gods of Egypt at the same time. Then he leads his people, and what is his solution? What is his stratagem? It's to make a covenant with them and give them an increased revelation of what his holy dominion in the heavens is. What his temple and his throne looks like. And men begin to replicate the image of the almighty God. There is no greater revelation than understanding who he is, what he is, and becoming like him. Saints, we want to become like him as his kingdom on the earth. And it's important that we recognize how this story has been playing out. He sent a righteous son who had a revelation that then was implemented upon the earth. Say it all starts with revelation. It all starts with revelation. Man, when there's a problem on the earth and the heavens, God fixes it by giving a man a revelation. Let's look at that revelation. Judah mentioned it. It's Exodus 25, verse 9. I'll read it. God told Moses, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Exactly. Man, that's quite a solution, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. There's a heavenly defection going on and God's going to fix the problem by telling Moses to make a bunch of furniture. <laughs> quite a revelation. Yeah. Except it's not just a bunch of furniture. It is a pattern of something. Yeah. Now, where do you think that pattern exists? If God's telling, if God's speaking down and saying, I have a pattern for you then that pattern is coming from the heavens, upward. God showed Moses a pattern and commanded him to build a replica on the earth. What Moses would build would be a mobile representation of a permanent structure in the heavens. Come you got on. that? Yeah. Deuteronomy 12, 5-7 says, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites. So, in Deuteronomy, there's already a mobile tabernacle built, Okay? And look what Moses says in Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. Moses had a mobile tabernacle that God told him to build. And he also had a revelation that God would choose a permanent place for his name to dwell. Amen. To that place you must go. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, that's very interesting, interesting to Moses because God already told him, make your sacrifices at this mobile tabernacle. And yet Moses is speaking forward. 
He knows that the revelation is progressing. Come on. He's saying to there, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings. Look, it's not here yet, Israel. But when you see God choose that place, when you see God designate where that permanent structure would be, then go there. Amen. Moses received the plans, which was a copy, but he understood that the Lord would build a permanent copy on the earth. This revelation was well understood by the prophets, and it made it all the way to Samuel. Come on. From Moses to Samuel. Samuel had a school of prophets, and when he died, the men he taught taught David further. This revelation passed many hands until it reached Solomon, but each time it was magnified and furthered. Each time the revelation passes through a set of hands, it was furthered. It was never abrogated. It was never abolished. Man, how important is discipleship? Come on, tell me again. The revelation that you are being handed falls into your hands. And what you do with that revelation, it determines whether or not that revelation dies with you or it grows to the next generations. Man, thank God that Solomon, thank God that Samuel didn't let it die. He furthered that revelation. This is the the progressing nature of revelation. All true revelation starts with a foundation, but then it is built upon. And when it is built upon, it doesn't change the foundation. Amen. That would be kind of ridiculous, right? To start building on a structure and then have to change the foundation. All revelation that comes from God starts with a foundation. And you build on it. You increase on it. Then you start to add to it. And then when it's completed, you see all the working parts together. That is the progressing nature of revelation. It's worth saying one more time. That the revelation that he received, he furthered. It was not abrogated. It was not abolished. You are in this house because God is giving you revelation that you do not need to go find your own and reinterpret. You need to take what you've been given. Do not abrogate it. Do not abolish it. Build on it and make it stronger. Increase it. That is why you've been brought to this room and this house. We are here training together to advance the kingdom across the world. But if you spend your days looking to have your own hearing from God. Oh, it's just got to be. I didn't hear it. I don't see it. You see it because he brought you here to see it, just like David and Samuel. The moment that we recognize that, we begin to have God-breathed discipleship, God-breathed reading of the Scripture that multiplies what a man could not do in many years in a short time frame. I'm going to read to you Revelation 21, 3 through 4. So we know that Samuel had a revelation. We know that David had a revelation, that Moses had a revelation. And there's another man that has seen these things. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now... The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Saints, I want you to notice that Moses has a revelation, and that revelation is astounding. It is from the heavens. But Samuel and David built upon that revelation. It was increased. It was no longer a tent. It was a permanent structure. But it was based on the same foundation that Moses received. By the time that we get to John, 
after the earthly life of Jesus, he is seeing into the heavens about the fullest culmination of all things when Christ returns and that temple is here forever. This is how this is meant to work. That one man would garner from the last. That we would grow in a spirit-breathed kind of study. A spirit-breathed kind of discipleship. God always had planned that what was in the heavens would merge with the earth. That it would mirror it. Come on. God will use faithful earthly sons. That's you and me, saints. Amen. To replace the fallen ones in the heavens. Amen. Saints, we're here with a purpose to rule and reign and establish his throne upon the earth, the temple upon the earth. And we must displace, we must remove the other powers that have been leading the world astray. You first and foremost do that by being his imager, by being his example of the temple of God on earth. That happens in your own personal life, eliminating sin and living to Christ in freedom. Happens by discipling your family, by caring for your wife and children. You are becoming the leader and the builder of God's house that is to come, that we know is coming, that will come. God will use us as faithful earthly sons to replace the ones that were in heaven, those that have sinned, those that have fallen, earthly men like us. But because He made us in His image, because He died for us, because He loves us, He's able to use us if we are faithful to Him. God always wanted his priesthood in the heavens to merge with the one on the earth. This is the answer to the world's problems. This is the solution at the end of the book, at the end of our lives and our children's children's lives, is that heaven and earth might merge, that his temple would be forever here, and that we would get to participate in it. Now, daily, the way that we care for the things that are directly under our authority and purview, not every random thing happening somewhere in the United States, what's under your purview is how we begin to answer the problems of this world. Now, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, and as we go, you're going to start to see a bigger picture emerging. The reason why we're sharing this right now is because we're explaining to you from the beginning what the end is going to look like. We're explaining to you how God starts to build his permanent structure on the earth. You guys want to see that? Yes. We're about to look exactly where David started building that temple. You guys want to see that? Yeah. All right. Amen. Linton, if you would, read verse 2 through 5. He also gathered together all the leaders of Israel, as well as the priests and Levites. The, the Levites, 30 years old or more, were counted, and the total number of men was 38,000. David said, Of these, 24,000 are to supervise the work of the temple of the Lord, and 6,000 are to be officials and judges. 4,000 are to be gatekeepers, and 4,000 are to praise the Lord with musical instruments I have provided for that purpose. Come on. Come on. Now look, David has already amassed the materials. He's already gotten everything together for Solomon to use. He's already got all the workers that Solomon could use. He told him you can add to them. And I'm sure Solomon did. <laughs> David already had the plans that were given to him by discipleship. Where's the first place that David starts to begin the work of the temple? Was it started whenever stones were being cut in a quarry? No. Was the work started whenever gold was being hammered? No. The work of the temple officially starts right here in this chapter. Amen. When David begins to put into order 
the divisions of those who would take part in service to the temple. The first place that David starts is in the divisions that would minister at the temple. Come on. Once you let that sink in as we go. Now, of all the Levites, more than half, he counted all the Levites who were 30 and older. And more than half of them are dedicated to the temple to supervise. And what was the number? Exactly 24,000. I want you to file that away. 24,000. 8,000 still served the temple's purposes, but not in supervising in other areas. The other 6,000, they're left out to supervise the rest of Israel. Think about that. You've got something like 32,000 Levites that are going to be at the temple that were previously doing work amongst the other Israelites, and now they are all at the temple. That shows you how important this was, right? Yeah. And only 6,000 left for the rest of Israel. That tells you exactly what's going on. There is a huge amount of resources in the terms of discipleship going on here. Hey, let's get into verse 6 and 7. David divided the Levites into groups corresponding to the sons of Levi. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, belonging to the Gershonites. So saints, yeah, you have to work with us. Everybody's a little dreary right now. No. No, you are. I'm not asking. Oh. <laughs> into groups corresponding to the sons of Levi. There was Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. These were the three priestly tribes that were in charge of the, the three, I'm sorry, Levitical tribes that were sub-tribes of Levi in charge of the temple. We're going to outline them for you here. Gershon. Gershon is the eldest of three sons of Levi. Man, he was the oldest, firstborn. He was... Uh, the eldest born of the families of Gershon and uh, down there highlighted it says that the sons of Gershon had charge of the fabrics of the tabernacle, the coverings, the screen, the hangings, and the cords. In the encampment, their station was behind the tabernacle on the west side. So here you have one subtribe of Levi and their duties are to take care of coverings like tarps, screens, hangings, and cords. Man, it's good to know your duties, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Somebody say, fabrics. Fabrics. The eldest son of Levi was in charge of fabrics. He worked at Marshall's. Remember that game. <laughs> These guys had a function and a part to play. And we'll see how each of them continued to progress in the revelation that David had received. See, our job duties are going to get modified here in just a little while. We're not moving something around in a desert anymore. Brother Linton, keep reading down through 11 for me. The sons of Ladan, Jehiel the first, Zethan and Joel, three in all. The sons of Shimei, Shalomon, Haziel, and Haran, three in all. These Shilomon. were the leads of the families of Ladan. And the sons of Shimei, Jehath, 
Ziza, Jehush, and Beriah. These were the sons Perfect. of Shimei, four in all. Jehath was the first, and Ziza the second. But Jehush and Beriah did not have many sons. They were counted as one family with one assignment. All right, we've got to push pause for a minute. We can't just read through this. This particular family line that is being described, that is a part of the kingdom of God on earth, we have a man who didn't have many sons. It's a little, you know, difficult to stomach when you really think about the implications of that. Their family line was destined to work on the kingdom of God. And this guy was staring in the face his own unfruitfulness. More than that, his unfruitfulness was written about in the word of God permanently. It's one thing to make a mistake. It's one thing to sin egregiously. It's another thing to have it plastered all over the walls where everyone who loves the Lord will read it over and over again. Are there some mamas that have tried to have children and struggled with it who can empathize with what I'm saying? Staring at your own unfruitfulness is a very difficult task. And yet, the Lord was able to make provision. Their family grew tighter as opposed to separating and dwindling off. They became counted as one unit, one people of God. And they performed the test together until they got it done. But it reminds me of a few people that I love and people that I love from the Word of God. Abraham had a single son. That nation that we were just looking at would be wiped out if that one son didn't make it. Gone, done. My ministry partners and beloved family, Nick is the only son of Baj and Natalie. If Nick died three years ago, the Arizinas would no longer exist on the earth. Done. Family lineage out. But God provided a son in both cases. And you know what happened through the generations? We go from one man who has had a son to men who are having two, then 12. God is able to take the family lines of the faithful, cause us to be bound a little tighter. Does somebody in the Rosales clan hear me? and then make you more fruitful in the generations to come. God did this for the Levites and he will do it for you. From Ezra's perspective, he can see that God is at work in their generations. And he wants you to know that he has the exact numbers, that God has not forgotten a single one of them. Can I tell you tonight that the Lord has not forgotten you? You're not one and a long list of meaningless names to him. He knows your very heart. We need to garner the trust that he is able to work these things out as we go along. I know there are men in this room that are fighting to see their families do well. Many of you were very close and I know exactly how painful that is. But he will tighten up your ranks and he will make you more fruitful. It's beautiful to mention that they became one family with one assignment. Whether you have many as a gift or you have few, we are still one family. They were one family in the kingdom of God, and we are one family in the kingdom of God, and both sets will build it. Justin, will you tell us about Koath? So let's pick up the verse 12 and just read the first part. The sons of Koath. We've mentioned Gershom earlier, and now we're seeing the Koathites, another sub-tribe of the Levites. The Koathites were considered the most important of the three major Levitical families. I love that. I don't think it's particularly true, but we chose to use this Bible dictionary so we could show you what most scholars say about the Kohathites. I think it's kind of ridiculous to think that they were the most 
important of three major Levitical families. I mean, after all, we're talking about people that had fewer gifts and they were considered one family. The Kohathites were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle and were responsible to care for and move the ark. Table, lampstand, altars, vessels of the sanctuary, and the screen. Well, no wonder they were considered the most important. I mean, they got to handle the ark for crying out loud. While Gershon's over there handling fabrics. (laughs) Look, there's a message in here for you. All of these families share the same exact mission. And they all had different pieces. They all had different parts to play in the same battle. It didn't matter that one was handling fabrics. It didn't matter that the other one was the oldest or the firstborn. Or this one got to handle the ark. They were both important. And they both had to work together. You see, if, if, if Kohathites start carrying out the ark, but Gershon's not right there with the covering, well, guess what? People start dying. You see how important it is for them to work together? Yeah. But you could be a, a Gershonite and you say, man, I want to handle the ark. I mean, just, just for once, I want to look at it. I want to get close to it. But you could also be, be a Kohathite and say, you know, I'm tired of my people getting killed, man. I want to handle some fabric for a while. I want hazard pay. <laughs> look, it doesn't matter where God has set you. Your boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Yeah. It doesn't matter what your job is in the kingdom. Your job is beautiful, and it's given to the right person by God, I promise you. And the moment that we start working together and being content where we're at, the moment that the temple starts being built the right way. Let's move on. Listen, we're not trying to beat on Holman Bible Dictionary, but the God's honest truth is this is what we all do. We decide what we think is important and what is worth giving our wholehearted effort to. Yep. You ever been on a job or had a Wednesday where you didn't feel like your task was particularly important? So you just kind of forgot that you were working under the Lord and because you didn't deem it worthy of you, you gave it a half-hearted effort? We have our divisions in this room that are equally important for the saving of lives and the building of the kingdom of God. You know where this creeps in the most in our lives? It's when we start talking more about what we do instead of who we are in Christ. The moment we start talking about, you know, I go, to, I go to prison ministry and it's great, we have a good time, or hey, I'm on the worship team and, you know, I, it's really awesome, you know, you should try to be on the worship team. Or anything like that is the moment we start focusing on what we're doing instead of who we're doing it for. Amen. We're going to get this right tonight, amen? amen. Faithful reader of the scroll, help us out. The sons of Amram, Aaron and Moses. Aaron was set apart. He and his descendants forever to consecrate the most holy things, to offer sacrifices before the Lord, to minister before him, and to pronounce blessings in his name forever. The sons of Moses, the man of God, were counted as a part of the tribe of Levi. Saints, God is interested in building our sons. That's in a distinct change from how we often think about this. God promised through the Davidic line that there was going to be a son that would come, and it was his son, and David's. It's funny how that works out. The Bible is not about family dynasties. The one family that it isolated, that it selected, is about those that would pursue the kingdom of God and who the Messiah would be born to. God's intention in this house is to build up families that are fit for a very specific kind of function. We want to just take a minute and read this one more time and share with you personally. 
Aaron was set apart, he and his descendants, forever to consecrate the most holy things, to offer sacrifices before the Lord, to minister before him, and to pronounce blessings in his name forever. Somebody say that's good. That's good. The sons of Moses, the man of God, were counted as part of the tribe of Levi. <laughs> the guy who had the revelation of the heavens, his sons were counted as a part of the general population of Levites. I want you to think through the implications there for a moment. <laughs> who would you have expected to be the priestly line forever if Moses is the one who had the revelation, who was on Mount Sinai and brought them out of Egypt? Moses. See, but God had no interest in building up a family dynasty. He had an interest in building up those who performed a function. Yeah. Now it gets interesting because as a Levite, who would Moses' son serve? Aaron's sons. You know, so it's not about a fam family dynasty at all. It's about the function that God has called you in, and it's about growing in that function, not building up a family dynasty. Judah and I were thinking about this earlier. You know, it's interesting. Judah's father is an elder of the One Association and a pastor of this church. But you want to know what Judah's not going to do? Be a pastor in this church. Judah's going to go out in the function that his dad taught him and take that function somewhere else. God's not interested in building up the Stevens household as much as he is building up the function of the Stevens household and having that function spread further. You know what else is true? Eric Treister is a pastor in the One Association. Do you know what Justin is not going to do? Not going to pastor in Victoria and take the church over. You know what he will do, though? Pastor people. He will advance the kingdom of God, take those that are distressed and turn them into mighty men. Eric Treister does that better than anybody I've ever met. And his son does the same. Yeah. Come, on. Come on. We have to adopt the biblical model. Yeah. The biblical mindset. That is not about the locality. And is not about the name. Yeah. It is about the function. Yeah. Moses and Aaron's sons go on to do great things. That were greater than what they did. Because they are increasing in the revelation. They're actually going to get to minister in the temple that Moses saw and got to build a tabernacle that was similar to it, but was not even yet the fullness on the earth. This is meant to increase, but we have to eliminate the kind of thinking in our lives that is like a worldly business system, that is like the kings of this earth that we are here to dispossess. Raising our sons into a function, not a specific location. We want to work where no man has worked. We want to prosper where others have died out. We want to see the kingdom of God expanded. But that comes from us as fathers, as parents, aiming for the function that God has aimed our children for. Discipleship in Moses' life with his sons ended at Nebo. He's gone. He's dead. But his sons took part in what he prophesied about. Saints, we want you to have revelation that your sons are the only ones they get to walk in but you spent years in the Word and the Spirit and being discipled, cultivating it, where you will be with the stars like it was spoken about with Abraham. You are in the heavenly host. You are with the Father looking on the sons of men. And you know that they received the revelation that you dreamed about, that you saw, that you made the preparations for. Linton, will you pick back up with us in 15 through 17? The sons of Moses, Gershom and Eliezer, the descendants of Gershom, Shubael was the first. The descendants of Eliezer, Rebahiah, was the first. Eliezer had no other sons, 
but the sons of Rebahiah were very numerous. Man, Eliezer didn't have a lot going for him, I mean, in the, in the sun world than uh, Rehabiah did. But you know what? He makes it in this list. And God is looking for an exact number, and you're going to see that in a little bit. And his son the, had many. The names of this list make up an exact number that God wanted. Look, the message is don't despise the day of small beginnings. Just because Amen. there's one son in the household doesn't mean you're not going to have ten in the future. And it's not just talking biological, spiritual sons as well. The family line was narrowed down to one son, and yet God resurrected it to a single generation. Tom, tell me that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Amen. That speaks a message to us tonight. Hey, let's pick up in uh, verse 18 and read down to 21. The sons of Ishar, Shelimoth was the first. first. The sons of Hebron, Uriah was the first, Amariah the second, Jehaziel the third, and Jechamim the yeah. first. Yeah. Yeah. The sons of Uziel, Micah the first, and Ishiah the second. The sons of Moriah. All right, we're picking up with a new group. Let's take a look at this on the screen together. The Mararites. A couple notes about them. While they <laughs> were there to carry the heavier objects. Somebody say heavier. Heavier. Come on, Dan. That's the boards, the bars, the sockets, the pillars. How do you carry a pillar? <laughs> and consequently needed a greater supply of oxen and wagons. You look up at the first highlight. Moses gave twice as many to the Maronites. Saints, the Maronites had a job to perform. And it was hard. Somebody say, hard. Hard. And yet they had twice the provision from Moses, twice the gifts that were given for that very purpose. Tell me our God doesn't know what we need despite what position we play, what role we have, what job we have to do. He's able to provide for you. He's able to aid you in it and cause you to succeed. Amen. Now what we have to fight not to do and make <laughs> sure is eliminated in us. We cannot look at our brothers that handle fabrics and complain because we handle pillars. See, they had a better uh, equipment, better tools, better anointing, but they had a harder job to do. And we can't be Gershonites and look at the Mararites and say, you know what, they get twice as many, twice as many oxen and carts. I mean, come on, I know they're not using all those oxen. They might eat one or two, you know, whenever they feel like it. Yeah, see, You're looking at- pillars, you would be. <laughs> when you compare yourselves by yourselves, that is not wise. When you are looking at other people to compare the situation that God has placed you in, that is not going to get you fruit in the kingdom. What does give you fruit in the kingdom is looking at the Lord and saying, what do you want me to do? And then when he speaks that to you, you say, I, I am going to do that with all of my heart. That is how each piece fits in its place. And that's how we begin to build something. Amen. Here we can see that the Levites function in very much the same way our body functions. All of us are part of the same tribe. We are priestly. We are priesthood of the Most High God, and yet we all have different functions. Yeah. These three divisions of Levites each had a spe specific function and had to work as one unit. They had to work as one unit. These functions, now get this, these functions are quickly about to change because there would be a permanent dwelling. Think about that for a second. Their entire existence up to this point has been defined what they have done for the mobile tabernacle. But that's about to change because there's going to be a permanent dwelling. You know, what that, you know what that says to me? That our function that we are walking in right now will be magnified during the temple period. Could it be that what you're doing right now is preparing you for the permanent Come on. temple period? 
Could it be that the place that God has you now will be magnified in the future? No way. Don't tell me. But you know what? We'll never get to that magnification if we can't do what we're called to do now. That's why we have to have boundary lines in pleasant places. We, like the Levites, are being formed for a very specific purpose. God has you what you're doing right now because he's going to use what you've grown in that and he's going to use what he's put inside you during that function and he is going to magnify that when the permanent dwelling comes. That's exciting, isn't it? Man, I want to get there. We want to share a couple scriptures on that topic. Who wants to read? Sudi, you get 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Uh, Timo, you're going to get Colossians 3, 15 through 17. Jackie, you're going to get Ephesians 4, 2 through 7. And Bonnie, you're going to get 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Pick up when you got it. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Wow. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. All right, we're going to pause. Whether you're a Kohathite, a Maronite, a Gershonite, the same spirit is at work in every one of us. Yeah. Every one of them. Because they are unified around building the kingdom of God according to the plans that came from the word and the spirit and discipleship. The same God works uh, all of them in all men. Pick up in seven and keep going. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Sorry. Now to each one, the manifestations of the spirit is given for the common good. Common good. To one that is given to the spirit, the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of to another, the faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers, and to another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits, and to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. What? And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the works of one and the same spirit. And he gives them each to each one just as he determines. All right, I've always wondered what miraculous powers is, but uh, I'm sure our elders will enlighten us later. I'm still dwelling on <laughs> distinguishing between spirits. <laughs> All of these are the work of one and the same spirit. Well, how is it that it can manifest differently in different people? Well, perhaps it's because you need different people to build a magnificent yeah. structure. Yeah. Look, if you want to build a doghouse, you can probably do it with a little rinky-dink hammer in your backyard. If you want to build something that God is proud of, you're going to need a lot of different people. Yeah. You need men on your left and right that you're not born the same way. You're not from the same place. You're different even in your calling. But you know how to work alongside each other. Yeah. We need the construction project, the family, the team of God that will build the kingdom of God on earth. And he apportioned those gifts for the common good. So there is no such thing as I don't need that. And by that, I mean that person or that gifting or that calling we need each other and it's the only way we will see the heavens realized on the earth Colossians 3 15 let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful no hold on hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah. members of how many bodies one, one body, body. One body. Oh, no. you were called to what one. 
Shalom. And be what? Be thankful. Amen. Come on. Be thankful over what? Be thankful over the position that God's put you in. You know what happens when you're not thankful that the about your position? He might put you in a different one. You start looking at someone else, you're like, man, I wish I could do what that guy does. He might actually let you do it to show that you can't do it. Be thankful where you're at. Keep going. Oh, man, you mean instead of bickering and complaining and, and fighting over differences about how we see things, we should be teaching and admonishing one another? Man, that's good. Keep going. Yeah. And that's why we worship like we do. The way you worship shows how your unity is. When you can come together and worship and there is nothing between you and your brothers, that shows really where you're at, doesn't it? What's verse 17? And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Man, I love the fact that it says whatever you do. That might be showing up to, to secret service and cleaning toilets. You know, I, I've been to Israel and I've seen what slaves do for the Roman bathhouses. And I want to tell you, it's pretty brutal when Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly master like you are obeying the Lord. It doesn't matter what you do. You are to do it unto the Lord. Amen. What's Ephesians 4 verse 2? Get verse 7. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ is the one that apportioned it himself. He gave exactly what his people needed to be able to build the temple of a God. Now, the items about this that really are challenging for us is not that we don't believe that God will give you the gifting you need for the job. It's the humble, patient, gentle, spirit with one another. Anybody ever lived with somebody for a couple months? You thought everything was perfectly good? It was all all right? Nick and I just were, were totally tight, man. Nothing on the planet could ever come between us. But we lived separately. We acted separately. And those of you that got married, how was your you know, first six months? And you suddenly realized that the closer that you are together, <laughs> There are things you really don't like. They really start. <laughs> really start to grind on you, man. Like starting to get a little chafing, some sandpaper over there. Like I, I don't, I don't like being shoulder to shoulder that much anymore. God uses the different callings, giftings, and individuals in here. It's a primary, primary tool for renovating our lives and turning us into the image of Christ. Just like the single guys on the back row that you know they're stupid and selfish. They just don't know how stupid and selfish they are. Well, the reality is that you and your wife are one flesh, and in the name of Jesus, that's a statement that's increasing every single day. 
The, the people on your left and right, when you only see them at church or the occasional dinner, you're giving both of each other a glossed over version of who you are and it's hard for you to rub things off that don't belong. See, we are a tool in the hands of God to refine each other. Say, I need my brothers. I need my brothers. And my brothers need me. All right, who's got Ephesians 4, 2 through 8? Which is 2 through 7. Oh, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Oh, wait, what? Where there are prophecies, they will what? Cease. They will cease. Oh, I'm Baptist. Let's keep going. <laughs> Where there are tongues, they won't be stilled. Well, hold on. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled? Okay, keep going. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Man, come on. Verse 9. Now, come on here for a second. We're talking about many men with different kind of giftings. We're talking about Kohathites, Merarites, Gershonites, all with different functions. These giftings one day will cease. When does that happen? When the perfection comes. When the permanent dwelling comes on earth, these things will no longer be needed. So you mean to tell me that right now, we have many functions and giftings in this room here tonight but one day that's all going to cease well when is it going to cease when the permanent shows up when we have built what we're supposed to build that means right now we're working in unity with all of our different functions and gifts towards the permanent establishment of god on earth this is god's answer to the heaven's problems you know what satan's stratagem is to try to get in the midst and divide all of us and picking on each other. Friendly fire. Stinking thinking. You know what heaven's stratagem is? Is when we all use our gifts and functions like God intended and we start building it until the perfect comes. See, this is not a Baptist passage in any way. This They alleviate this passage to alleviate themselves from the work they're supposed to be doing with those gifts. This shows us what we're supposed to do. Hey, by the way, we were just talking about... Uh, Heads of Levitical families. You add all of them up, and we didn't count while Linton was reading it, but you know how many you get? How many? Anybody want to guess? Seven. Nope. 24. We're going to introduce a new number tonight. There's 24. So we've already had 24,000 Levites set apart by David to supervise, and we have 24 Levites that are heads of families. All right? You following? Let's keep going. Linton, read verse 24 through 26. These were the, the descendants of Levi by their families, the heads of families, as they were registered under their names and counted individually. That is, the workers, 20 years old and more, who served mm. the temple of the Lord. Whew. For David had said, Since the Lord, the God of Israel, has granted rest to his people and has come to dwell in Jerusalem forever, the Levites no longer need to carry the tabernacle or any of the articles used in their service. <laughs> Saints, yeah. this is a packed couple verses. Yeah. First off, this is a beautiful imagery of the perishable being swallowed up by the imperishable. Think back to 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. We're seeing this being enacted between David into the second king, the building of the temple. Functions are changing. The actual structure itself is changing. This is what we've been talking about for days and weeks. Now, there's a couple other interesting notes there. Um, 
Read verse 27. Verse 27, I'll read it. According to the last instructions of David, the Levites were counted from those 20 years old or more. Okay, so anybody catching it? Yeah. One was 30 at the beginning of the chapter. And under Moses, perhaps Numbers 8.24, it outlines that to work in the tabernacle, you must be 25 and you were considered proficient, able to be a supervisor when you were 30 and have been doing it for five years. This leads to kind of an interesting concept that we want to work through for just a little while. David knew that we were now in a stationary location, that he had a revelation from heaven about how this was going to look, how it was going to work. And then suddenly he decides that those 20 years old will begin participating in the work. It's giving them more time to train, more time to practice. But it's likely because it wasn't required to remove the sacred furnishings, to transport them. It wouldn't be quite uh, accurate to say that it was nonetheless holy, nonetheless important, nonetheless God's house just like it was before. But the kind of precision that is needed when you're carrying a nuclear football that people get struck dead if they touch it is slightly different than when everything is in its position, in its place. You ever carried something with a young man that just does not know how to handle his own body and he's constantly buckling against you? I've carried a couch upstairs with Matthew Pirro that is so, it's ridiculous how heavy it is. But Matt knows what he's doing when he's walking. He knows where to put his feet. Some of the young strong men in the church that can lift a car do not know where to put their feet. They had a change that allowed men to start in the work of the temple, start in discipleship, start handling the holy things faster than they did in years past. That's an exciting idea. It's almost like we have an increase through the generations that is happening here. The standard was never lowered, but it was changed in the job parameters. Now, this is honestly an awful lot like LCM. As we've grown up, as we've increased, as there are more and more men up that are able to handle the word, able to handle the scripture. Yeah. It also gives opportunities for guys like us to be teaching a Monday night Bible study. Yeah. But when there was 10 people in the room and half of them were on their way to hell and the other half we weren't sure about given the given day, that's not exactly the time that you have somebody learn to teach. Right. You're fighting for their very soul. You're fighting for life or death. But this church has been brought to a place of maturity that you are able to participate in the work when you would not have been otherwise. And it allows you to gain the experience that you need faster. Just look at the pastors of the One Association, how that worked for them. We are increasing a kind of environment that is able to take the 20-year-old and cause him to work in an environment that 30-year-old men are supervising. And Please hear me. We're not speaking about respect to age. We're talking about a maturity in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, j just to be frank, there's a few of you that would not have made it in the early years. We were a little different. And we we've grown. We've matured. And we've been brought to a place where we're able to work through things. This is a blessing that we must recognize and that we must do for those that are coming behind us. There are more opportunities because the work is established. But our community is strong enough to carry more. Yeah. That is the truth of it. It's not riding on just a family. It is riding on men that know their function 
their plan in the kingdom of God with God's larger spirit directing us all. David is allowing an extra five years for men to grow in proficiency. Linton, if you'll pick up in 28 and uh, down to 31 for us. The duty of the Levites was to help Aaron's descendants in the service of the temple of the Lord, to be in charge of the courtyards, the side rooms, the purification of all sacred things, and the performance of other duties in the house of God. They were in charge of the bread set out on the table, the flour for the grain offering, the unleavened wafers, the bacon, and the mixing, and all the measurements of quantity and size. They were also to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord. They were to do the same in the evening. And whenever burnt offerings were presented to the Lord on the Sabbaths and at the new moon festivals and at appointed feasts, they were to serve before the Lord regularly in the proper number and in the way prescribed for them. Now, we're not going to say much on this because we're an hour and 15 minutes in and we have two more chapters to cover. And you guys are with us, right? Yes. One of the things we want to notice about this is they got a promotion. This is describing their duties, what they would be like in the temple. It's like the doors opened up to their new warehouse and they get to walk in like, yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing. They got a promotion. But that shows that those who are faithful over little will be given much more. Amen. Hey, move on to verse 32. And so the Levites carried out their responsibilities for the tent of meeting, for the holy place, and under their brothers and descendants of Aaron, for the service of the temple of the Lord. All right, we can't cover this one tonight, but those of you that enjoy chasing rabbit trails down, and I imagine that it may become a little more solid the greater amount of text that you go over. But we have this interesting relationship, almost a synchronicity in this verse between the tabernacle, temple... We're going to move on now, but that's worth looking into and checking how the tabernacle and the temple are presented in the book of Revelation. All right, Linton, we're going to start in chapter 24, man. You ready? Read down to verse 2. <laughs> These were the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their, died before their mm-hmm. father did, and they had no sons. There really is no family that that is called that is not ripe with problems. Here is Aaron, the one set apart for all the generations, and he had some family problems, didn't he? That ought to just let that be kind of a comfort. You shouldn't be discouraged if your family has problems. You should know that every man of God has had problems, but what they did is they fixed them. They moved on from them. Amen? Amen. Verse 3, and read to uh, verse 5. With the help of Zadok, a descendant of Eleazar and Ahimelech, a descendant of Ithamar, David separated them into divisions for their appointed order of ministry. A large number of leaders were found among Eleazar's descendants, that a larger uh, number of leaders were found among Eleazar's descendants than among Ithamar's, and they were divided accordingly. Sixteen heads of families from Eleazar's descendants and eight heads of families from Ithamar's descendants. Wait, sixteen and how many? Eight. eight. What does that bring you? Oh, very interesting. Okay, keep going. They divided them impartially by drawing lots. For there were officials of, of the sanctuary and officials of God among the descendants of both Eleazar and Ithamar. So we're start, starting to get into the priests. But one thing we want to notice here right off the bat is that there were officials of the sanctuary and officials of God wow. among the descendants. Wow. Wow. There are many different kinds of ministers that we want to show you. 
Among the Levites, we see a division. Among the priests, we see divisions. There are officials of the sanctuary and officials of God. That reminds me so much of Romans 12, verse 3 through 8. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measures of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Amen. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, by all means, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Yeah. If it is serving, let him serve. It, if it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Look, each part has validity and equality. It doesn't matter if they get to be officials at the sanctuary or they're just officials of God. I mean, because who would be disappointed about that, right? Uh-huh. All Levites worked for God full time. So even if you were an official at the sanctuary, you still were an official of God. That's how you got there. Some worked at the sanctuary, some around the other towns of Israel. And both are equally important. But none were more important than the other. Everybody say that. None were more important than the other. There is no place or position that is more important than the other. And I don't care what that is. Every relationship and position is reciprocal. We need each other. Amen. Now I want to bring to your attention one more time some numbers we're playing with. We've already mentioned there are 24,000 supervisors. We mentioned earlier that there are 24 Levitical tribes or Levitical heads of families. You know how you know what we're counting right here? The priestly families. And guess how many there are? 24. You're going to read about that, Linton, in verse 6 all the way down to 18. Power through it, bro. Uh, 19. Verse 19, chorus 2. Saints, there are 24 that were numbered specifically for this purpose. There's almost like there's a pattern that we're beginning to see 
that has to do with God's stratagem, or heaven's stratagem, if you will. Do you notice in verse 19 it said prescribed by Aaron? It was magnified by Samuel and then David. And the order was still in effect by the time that we get to the days of Jesus. They were prescribed by Aaron, worked on, cultivated by Samuel, and then furthered by David. We're going to read a couple passages to you. You'll be familiar with some of them. Luke 1, 5 says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. You guys remember him? Father John the Baptist? Who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife was Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. If you skim down in that chapter to verse 8 and 10, it says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, during the times prescribed to him by Aaron, by Samuel, by David, once when he was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Saints, this is John the Baptist's daddy. If you have some time later on, you should ask Bim a little bit about that guy's background. Not drawing conclusions, it's just worth working through. It's interesting to note that a prophetic, say prophetic, prophetic, Levite, Levite, caused David to enter the scene. Then we have a Levite, that is John the baptizer, leave Baptist off of it, that announces the ministry of Jesus. Now, moving on, no revelation comes from a vacuum. This was built upon from Aaron to Samuel all the way through because that's how revelation works. We are building upon a house. It's not magic, it's built, and it's God breathed. All right, Linton, come on, man. 20 through 30. Yeah. From the sons of Shubael, Jediah. As for Rehabiah, from his sons, Isaiah was the first. From the Israelites, Shelebah, the sons of Shelebah, Ahab. <laughs> the sons of Hebron, Uriah the first, Amariah the second, Jehaziel the third, and Jechamim the fourth. The sons of Uziel, Micah. From the sons of Micah, Shamir. The brother of Micah, Ishiah. From the sons of Ishiah, Zachariah, the sons of Merarah, Mali, and Mushi, mm. the sons of Jaziah, Bino, the sons of Merari, from Jaziah, Bino, Joham, Zakur, and Ibri, from Mali, Eleazar, who had no sons, mm. from Kish, the son of Kish, Jeremiah, and the sons of Mushi, Mali, Eder, and Jeremoth. Now, guess how many there are? There are 24, and we're not going to count them right now. But these are the 24 Levites, and this is a repetition. He's listing these names for a second time in this passage. Now, why would he do that? Because it has always been about a specific people and a specific promise. Ezra is showing again, he's taking very good, careful attention to the details and listing this because it was always about this specific people paving the way for a very specific king. Did you hear Judah talk about how a Levite always paved the way for a king son of David? Did you hear that? 
Ezra's recording this so that you know by the time you get to Matthew, by the time you get to Luke, you say, oh my gosh, this is the same thing that happened in Chronicles. A Levite is paving the way. Hey, let's pick up uh, at the, let's pick up in 31 and read to the end of the chapter. That's it. They also cast lots, just as their brother the descendants of Aaron did, in the presence of King David and of Zadok and Himalach and the heads of families of the priests and of the Levites. The families of the oldest brother were treated the same as those of the youngest. It's very interesting how the Lord works that out. Moses, Aaron, he is able to look at a family and place them in their proper function regardless of their birth order. And they did it by lot to ensure that we have zero partiality in it. There's a message in that, and we're going to leave it at that and let you contemplate it. We're going to pick up in the first verse of 1 Chronicles 25. You guys ready to get into something that's really good? Is anybody bored? I promise you, you're going to get something so good tonight that you have never seen and that you have never known, and it is going to bless you. You guys want to get into 25? Yes. All right. Verse 1. together with the commanders of the army, set up some of the sons of Asaph, He-Man, and Jether for the ministry of Prophesying. Now look, we're going to get into some really neat things, but can you guess how many soldiers were in each division? 24,000. There are 24,000 soldiers in each division of the army. That's really interesting because David together with the commanders of the army. Here we've already seen 24,000 Levitical supervisors, 24,000 Levites, 24,000 priestly tribes, and 24,000 in each branch of the military. There's a big picture here, and we're going to get to it in just a second. But more specifically, what did they do? David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart men for prophesying. Mm -hmm. Why were the... Now, hold on a second. Why were the commanders of the army there uh, anointing men to prophesy? Why was that happening? You guys want to get into that? Let's hand out a few quick scriptures. You guys be ready to read quick, clear. We'll interrupt you for sure. But let's get ready to get it. So, uh, Brandon... Read Numbers 11, 24 through, you're going to read through 30, and you're going to get interrupted quite a bit. Uh, who else can read really good? Rob, you can. First Chronicles 24, 25, sorry, 1 through 4. Um, Gabriel. Gabe, read Amos 3, 7. Assad, get Luke 1, 68 through 75. Nolan, you're going to take Luke 1, 76 through 79. Cho, you're going to take 1 Corinthians 14, 13. And uh, last one, Hayes, you're going to get Revelation 19, 8 through 10. And this is on the topic. Write it in your notes. This is on the topic of military intelligence. This is on the topic of corporate prophecy. You want to get into that? Yeah. Yeah. How many of us are eager to prophesy? How many of you are eager to be prophets just like Moses said? Well, we're going to learn how to be prophets right here. Numbers 11. So Moses went out and told people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Mm. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took up the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. 
Pause. So we have 70. We have a revelation. We have a spirit resting upon those 70 elders. And again, they did do so again. Just go check another (laughs) translation. Just go look at it in an interlinear. I cannot do that this evening. Moses took of the spirit that was on himself, the man who saw into the heavens and saw God's plan. They were not just anointed with the Holy Spirit in general, but they were anointed with the spirit that was on the leader of the peoples. Consider that in light of the 70 discussion. Prophecy is not just hearing from God in general, but hearing from the Lord in conjunction with the leader of his people. There is a link between the elders and those who lead the congregation. There is a link between the spirit of God that is more than just general anointing but is a prophetic insight for the people that you're tied to. The leaders have received a mission, and the prophecy needs to be in unison with that mission. We have a mission to build the kingdom of God on earth, and we're going to see here in just a moment how prophets and those who would fight to build it were linked. Brandon, keep reading through 26 through 30 for me. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. (laughs) But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now, all right. Now, look, Moses says right here that it is the Lord's spirit. But remember what happened earlier. God took the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the men. But Moses says it's the Lord's spirit. What's going on? Well, the Lord's spirit is enabling these men to prophesy. But Moses spirit was on them because Moses was the leader of the people. There were two men that were not present, but because of the office of the prophet, they were operating in the spirit of Moses. All right. And what does Moses say? Moses says he wants this on all the people. He wants all the people to be able to do this. This shows us that the goal of prophecy is to catch the spirit that has anointed the leaders and gaining insight about that. So prophecy is not just about hearing from the spirit. Prophecy is about catching the spirit that is on the leaders of the congregation and prophesying and having insight about what the spirit is encouraging them to do. Listen to that. Everything else is more for the person who is prophesying's entertainment. If you're coming just to, to prophesy and you want to prophesy and it doesn't have anything to do with the spirit that is on the leaders of the church and this body, then it is. Just for your entertainment. Well, what if you go to another church? Well, if you prophesy in another church, you ought to know what the Spirit is leading the men of that church to do before you prophesy. Otherwise, your prophecy is worthless. And it's just for your own entertainment. Now, no doubt any Christian can perceive something in the Spirit. But someone who is led to prophesy has to have something to do with the body in which they prophesy. Do you see why we have somebody with a mic? dictating prophecy it's because a lot of times we just want to prophesy so bad 
And it has nothing to do with the vision of the leaders of the body. It says that God took the spirit of Moses and put it on the men and they began to prophesy. Man, we need some of our pastor's spirit, don't we? We need some of our leader's spirit inside of us, don't we? Rob, pause just one moment before reading it. We're going to read just the first verse. There is a huge difference between having discernment and insight about a particular subject as opposed to having the word of the Lord for the people that you are unified with. If the Lord didn't tell you to say it, then keep it to yourself. You hear me? Being able to discern something is not the same thing as speaking the voice of God. Now, throughout the law, praise God, we we have the ability to practice a little bit and get it right. To prophesy in the name of God and it's not true is a death sentence. Now, with that, Moses' desire was that all God's people would be able to see into the heavens and have a word of the Lord for the people that they were in community with, that they were building the work of God with. Now, in light of military intelligence, hear verse 1 again as Rob reads it. 1 Chronicles 25, verse 1. David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jedithan for the ministry of prophesying. Accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. Here is a list of the men who performed this service. We're going to read the rest of that in the list of men here in just a minute in our own text. These men were with the king in battle situations. Okay? These are the guys that fought the wars, that tread out the winepress, that deal with the king of Ammon, that had fought against giants and put them to death. Why do you think that he wants them with him when he's talking to the prophets? It's very interesting. You would expect military commanders to be discussing armament, to be discussing weapons and fortifications. But here they are discussing the prophets that will be ministering before them. Why were the prophets there? It's the exact same reason that Elijah was able to preserve Israel while the king of Aram is searching for them. Because he could hear in the king's bedroom what he was about to do. They tied prophets and commanders of the armies together for a very good reason. Are you soldiers of Jesus Christ? Yes. Yes. Then you need prophecy that is divine insight alongside of it. See, we're not just blundering around in this world with the vision that God has already given this body. You need to be praying that God would give you prophetic insight for this body. Amen. So if our pastors can see that we are supposed to reach the nations, that we must have 12 churches, Your prayer, your prophecy, your things must be steps and things along the way to achieve that. If you know that your brothers are laboring in the Lord to see a house that has been birthed, to see children grow, that's where your prayer, your insight, your prophecy should be directed. It's not for the sake of amusement. It's for the sake of winning the war that we are a part of. Commanders of the armies in this house and prophetic messages have got to unify. And we see areas of it. We see men and women like our pastors and elders that are great at it. But that's the responsibility of all God's people. That was the wish for all God's people. Especially if you believe that you're going to become an elder in the future and that's what you're aiming your family at. That is what they were anointed for in Numbers 11. We need to train up the right kind of prophecy where we don't accept parlor tricks. But we do expect the real thing to happen. So we're not blogging. We're seeing into the plan of God and the enemy's camp. And being able to avert his schemes, being able to overcome him. 
This is a little bit like the IDF in the Mossad. So the Mossad is gathering intel. They are learning about Iran's plot. Where they have the missile? Well, then there's somebody else that goes in, kicks in the door, and blows up the missile. We need military intelligence in our life. We need, like the son of David, to recognize it and be able to work together to create it. Now, small note, uh, we've many times in this body preached about Brock the giant weenie who wouldn't go without a woman. Still kind of on the fence. Um, <laughs> why did he want a woman to go with him to battle? Because she was a prophetess. It wasn't because she could wield a sword well. It was not because she was going to be particularly fa helpful facing the enemy. It was because that she could see something that others couldn't. Look, the moment that we get rid of her pride and just say, I need genuine, clear insight from God, and then go do it in the war, that's how we win, saints. Amen. When we see clearly and we're willing to do the fight. I don't want to be caught on the enemy schemes. I want heavenly stratagem. Amen. Heavenly stratagem has prophets and warriors working together. Hey, who's got Amos 3.7? I do. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his wow. plan to his servants, the prophets. This is why David had prophets. David wanted with his military commanders to go out and win battles, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's why he had prophets with him. They would reveal how he was supposed to do things. The prophets we need to listen to are the ones that further the leader's vision. Not the ones that just talk about anything that they think is relevant in the moment. Not the ones that, that take what they preached on in prison ministry and just want to come preach on it here on a Sunday morning. The kind of prophets that David you know, you had with him were more like military intelligence commanders. Are you following? Yeah. The reason for corporate prophecy is to enhance or to add to or to give direction to the mission that the pastors, the leaders have already given. Who's got Luke 1, 68 through 75? Saints, notice what the prophets are speaking about. It's the deliverance from the enemies. It's how God's going to do it. What his plan on earth is. God used his prophets to further his mission. This is his heavenly stratagem. Let's get 76 through 79. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Saints, this is Zechariah prophesying about what his son would do that we referenced earlier. There was a Levite that prepared the way for the Davidic son. He gives the furthering of this mission, heavenly stratagem, that his son would then do like the soldier or the commander. His son will further what was already spoken, but the insight that came from heaven from a father to a son showed him how to walk it out, how to do it right, how to win in it. 
As John the baptizer grew, he had an understanding of what the overall mission was because of his father. Man, what a gift to know the end from the beginning, to know what you're called to do when you're born on the earth because your father had prophetic insight. He understood what it was to get insight into the enemy's camp and prepare you for it. That's what we want you to have. And for our own common good to be able to do this together. Who is 1 Corinthians 14, 13? Man, that's an interesting verse, isn't it? For so long we've been used to somebody who is just gifted at giving uh, prophecies in tongues and then waiting for someone else to interpret it. But this plainly says, for this reason anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret it. Well, why? If one man prophesies and another interprets, it's useful. The person who prophesies in tongues may have something and feels like something needs to happen, but that prophecy in tongues is empty. It's completely useless until there is an interpretation. That man's goal should be to understand and complete that prophecy. Amen. Not just give some kind of warm, feely prophecy in tongues. The prophecy is not just something that feels good. It has to further the mission. The prophecy has to further the mission. So if you feel like you have a prophecy, you have to stop. You have to ask the Lord, how does this further the mission that God has already given this body? You guys tracking? And yeah. for sure, we, we all know from personal experience and what's demonstrated in the scripture. It is right. It is biblical. that one would prophesy in tongues and one would interpret. But we are missing all that God has for us when that is all that we do. Do you want all the military intelligence you can get? Yes. I, I, I would like to win. I would like to hammer them. I would like to not be in the dark. What that causes us to do is search and ask God to give us insight. What you're starting to see is that there is a military command and then there is military intelligence. That is the prophecy. The military intelligence always works with the military command to further the mission. You guys with us? Yeah. We hand this one out, or did we? Yeah, who's got Revelation 19, 8 through 10? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now look, the role of the leaders is to prepare people for works of service in context of the mission of the local church. That is why your pastors are here, is to prepare you for the mission of this church. You're not here to be prepared for any other mission or anything else that, that you came here with. That's you are word. here to be prepared for the mission of this church. Amen. We are clothing the bride. And that's Ephesians 4.11 all day, by the way. We are clothing the bride. We are putting on her garments or her battle uniform, if you will. Hey, read verse 9 through 10. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this, I felt at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Man, the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Come on. The spirit of prophecy is what ultimately clothes the bride. Are you following that? It shows her how to be clothed with the mission. To perform the righteous acts. How can the bride know what to do unless the spirit of prophecy is showing her how to get her righteous garments? It is the spirit of prophecy, which is the spirit of Jesus. If the word from the pastors is to take that mountain, 
then the prophecies that we hear on a Sunday morning should be how we take that mountain. It always has to complement the mission that God has given to our military commanders. It will never contradict it. It will build upon it and expand on it. Look, the reason why we're sharing this, everyone in this body is for prophecy. You can all prophesy. In fact, it says in Corinthians that these things must be done for the edifying and the building up of the church. But tell me, how good is it to know how prophecy actually works? So many times on television and Christian TV and 700 Club, you see what they call prophecy and it's not at all. Because it is not building up the mission of their local church and the military commanders that God has placed over them. You guys want to do that together? That gives us a little bit of insight about what prophecy does for us. When we hear a word, how many times have you been in this church and you've heard a word, and then the pastors get up and preach that exact same thing that was prophesied? That's because there are prophets in this room that can hear what God's battle plan is, and they don't need to go talk to the pastors to know what to prophesy. It's because they can hear into the war room of God, and they can add to the mission that God has already given these pastors. That's good, isn't it? All right, we're going to move on. We're going to get all the way down through verse 4 for me. Sons of Asaph, the court, Joseph, Nathaniah, Azarelah. The sons of Asaph were under the supervision of Asaph, who prophesied under the king's supervision. Wow. As for Jonathan, from his sons, Gedaliah, Zeri, Jeshiah, Shimeiah, Hashabiah, and Matahithiah, six in all, under the supervision of their father, Jonathan who prophesied using the heart in thanking and praising the Lord. As for Heman, from his sons, Micaiah, Mataniah, Uziel, Shubael, and Jeroboam, Hananiah, Hanini, Eliezer, got it, bro. Gildati, Perfect. Romati Ezer, Yobekta Shah, Shobarabah, Malto, Malto, uh, and <laughs> uh, that was perfect. Thank you, faithful reader of the scroll. Saints, we're going to get into this as we keep going. There is a certain structure and relationship and how they do this with supervision. But you remember we had 24,000 supervisors from the Levites. Then we had 24 heads of Levitical families. Then 24 heads of priestly families. Then we have 24 prophets that work in conjunction with the king and the military commanders. Come on. It's almost as if there is a plan of God, a heavenly stratagem, a design for his kingdom to be built and for the enemy to fall. 12, 70, 24 have a relationship, but when his dominion is on the earth, he orders us by these things. I love that the prophets, there's 24 of them, and the divisions of the military commanders consist of 24,000 segments. And we'll get to that in 1 Chronicles 27. Will you pick up in uh, verse 5? Uh, just 5 for me. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer. They were giving him to the promises of God to exalt him. God gave Heman 14 sons and three daughters. Man. You know, God exalted Heman by giving him many sons that would further the revelation that he had. And remind you, they were all prophets. God gave him sons so that they would further the revelation. Man, 
Sons are given to you to further the revelation that God has given you. God had ordained the exact numbers of these children. You see all kinds of things going on uh, where there were some sons that didn't, some fathers that didn't have many sons and some that did have many sons. But you want to know what the number always falls to? 24. Let's continue in verse 6 and we're going to keep going. All these men were under the supervision of their fathers for the ministry of the temple of the Lord with cymbals, lyres, and harps for the ministry of the house of God. Ministry. Asaph, Jonathan, and He-Man were under the supervision of the king. Saints, these sons were born. They were not 24 that were picked. It was the exact number that were born. So one guy has five, one guy has one, and it comes out to exactly what was needed. Tell me the hand of God is not at work in the generations of Israel. He still is to this day. Now, they're under the supervision of their fathers for the music and the ministry. And the fathers, Asaph, Jedithan, and Heman, were under the supervision of the king. Saints, this is just like LCM worship and ministry. There is a reason that we have pastors and leaders that are leading us in the direction of the king. And men who will help you figure out whether or not your prophecy is right. Help you learn to minister. Walk side by side with you like a father. Since this is the design of military intelligence. It is the way that we do this in a structure that gives every man the ability to hear from God. But they're never too far from their fathers where they get themselves killed for speaking something they shouldn't have. Since it is a holy and a righteous obligation. And it's also a joy. And it's also terrifying. I'm very happy to have fathers alongside us. Men like Baj and Charlie, when you're speaking for the living God himself. Consider how ridiculous it is that a sinful man like you or me would speak for God in his words. And yet he entrusted that with his church, his body. Sons operate under the supervision of their father. Their father's under the supervision of the king. Saints, to resent that, to think that you're above it, that you're beyond it, is beyond foolish. You do not understand the holiness of God when you talk that way. To understand this principle of supervision and holiness and to operate it to the fullest extent actually ushers in the kingdom of God. It arms his warriors and teaches us to win. Linton, let's pick up in 7 and 8. Along with their relatives, all of them trained and, and skilled in music for the Lord. They numbered 288. Young and old alike. Wait, how many? 288. Well, that's interesting. That's not 24 or 24,000 or 240. I don't know. Yeah, keep that number in the back of your mind. What's verse 8? Young and old alike. Teacher as well as student. Cast lots for their duties. Man, here you have trained men and skilled men who are under the supervision of fathers. And then they're all standing there, young and old. Teacher as well as student. They're standing together. Come on, how important is it to stand together as teacher and students in the same mission? Teachers, without your students, you will never fully accomplish the mission God has. Students, without your teachers, you definitely won't accomplish the mission that God has for you. This has to be maintained. There is a place for every one of us. Kings cannot kill their people. Fathers, they cannot destroy their sons. They need each other. We preached on this last week. This is the beauty of the symbiotic relationships between fathers and sons. I want to tell you something, fathers. Fathers are not obsolete once their sons begin to pass them up. They're not useless just because sons start to pass them up. 
Fathers and teachers still have the revelation to impart. Amen. What good is having a son if he has no revelation? Fathers, there is an absolute important mission for you. You have got the revelation from the beginning, and it is your job to impart that to your sons. But sons are not unimportant or expendable because they lack revelation. Without them, the work does not continue. Now, I know nobody in this room has a son that doesn't embarrass you from time to time. Mine did the other, the other day. He starts crying because he got hit in the face by one of my other sons. And I said, hey, you stop that right now. Stop crying. And the only reason I told him that because I was embarrassed around my friends. Right? Our sons are not expendable. We can't treat them just like any other thing. They're given to us because they lack revelation and we have it. We have to give them the revelation so that Amen. the work continues. Now we're going to finish out the chapter. And we're going to not read from verse 9 to uh, 31. Like Star Wars credits, it's going to roll across the screen while we continue to speak. And uh, because you do your reading in advance and we have four minutes left, we're going to keep going. You guys good with that? Yeah. All right. Saints, we've gone over a lot of numbers and a lot of names, but they all have a meaning and they're pointing to something good. You remember that number, 288? Saints, these are the men that were trained by and under the supervision of their fathers for the ministry and worship, operating in divine military intelligence or prophetic insight. Now we have 288 of them. All right, somebody do a little bit of math here. In what we just read, 12 times 24. We have 24 hours in a day and 24 watches at the temple. 24-hour time slots where 12 in each division are there. The exact order of their birth, 288, perfectly met the requirements of the temple, not one over, not one less. Tell me that's just a useless genealogy. God designed their birth order to the T to set up what the heavenly stratagem would look like for us that one day will be realized when Christ returns. Judah, you mean to tell me that we have a group of 24,000 supervisors, groups of 24 Levites, groups of 24 priests, army divisions and 24s, 24 prophets, and then we have 12 disciples for every 24 hours of the day? Wow. Are you guys starting to see a pattern there? Wow. What number do they all have in common? 24. You starting to see the picture? <laughs> By the way, Judah, what's so important about the number 24? Now, it's very interesting. It uh, seems to represent a couple things in the Bible, and it always has to do with God's government and his divisions. Where else have we read about that, Justin? Well, Revelation 4, 2 through 4 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. Man, shut it down. You mean to say that in the heavens, God's order is structured in 24s? Man, I wonder what's going on here. If we have 24 supervisors, 24 Levites, who are kind of like teachers, 24 priests, who are kind of like pastors, We have 24 military commanders who are like the evangelist out there proclaiming. And we have, what's next? 24 24 prophets. Prophets. And out of them are coming disciples. 
And God's structure around his throne is 24s. It's almost like God is giving something from the heavens to come down onto the earth and build something permanent for his hey, name. Where's God's throne? Yes, but where? Somebody's got to read Hebrews again. It's in his temple. In his temple, he is surrounded by 24 elders with thrones. And his earthly representation, we have five fist of God with 24 behind each of it. How do you think he wants to impose his dominion upon the earth and rule? It's by the fivefold ministry and the full number of his heavenly divisions. Come on. His strategy will succeed. Yeah. You know, Revelation 4, also in verse 9, says it again. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord, and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. Saints, this is in contrast to every other God. They are there proclaiming how worthy our God is. When he has stored the entire earth and shown his dominance, his ability to save his people Israel and tread out the winepress. And his divisions are marked by 24 around his throne. Hey, if that was not enough, Revelation 16 or 11, 16 says, And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped. Man, the heavenly throne is surrounded by a division of 24. And God wants to bring that heavenly throne and he wants to bring it to the earth. This represents the heavenly structure that is built by God. What is he doing amongst our, our, in our midst? He is putting us in our division so that we can bring his throne on the earth. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. We are participating in his stratagem. And it's outlined for us in Chronicles through their genealogies and how they built the temple of God. See, David wasn't making any mistakes here. He had seen in the heavens what is in the heavens, and he organized the earth to match it. Mm -hmm. See, that's our job. We have a revelation that is from heaven, and we are organizing, dominating the earth to match what is in the heavens. Yeah. He was acting upon that heavenly revelation. Now, saints, with that in mind, in our last couple minutes together, we want to give you some practical take-homes about what that looks like for us out of the Scripture and in our daily life. Amen. Let's take a look at Ephesians. We'll read them to you. Justin, you want to get Ephesians 4? Yeah, everybody turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 10 through 16. You still got Bibles in your lap? Yeah. Say, heavenly stratagem when you are there. Verse 10. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens. Who is that? Jesus. Come on. Who is that? Jesus. He ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Man, he ascended into the heavens in order to fill the entire universe with the heavenly stratagem. And what does he do from the heavens? He is in the heavens where those heavenly copies are. And what does he do? It was he who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to do what? Prepare God's people for works of service. Come on. He puts them into divisions of 24s to copy the heavenly pattern to prepare God's people for works of service. Like that 24 times 12. 
so that the body of Christ may be built up Amen. until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Yeah. Look, Jesus is the one that ascended into the heavens. He's seen it. It is not a pattern in his eyes anymore. He is there. He is right there amongst the heavenly copy and he is building it on the earth through you and I. From there, he gives us supervisors, priests, Levites, military leaders, and prophets, all in the right heavenly order. Our goal is the permanent dwelling of God that we are building just as they did. What they did in Chronicles, we are doing now. We are building that permanent dwelling. And we have to start where David and Jesus started. Where did they start? With the divisions. We have got to get our divisions right, church. We have got to learn our place because that's where David started and that's where the son of David started. With the divisions all in their right order and place. We have to be in the right order and place. Come on, tell me how important it is to know our function within the body. Amen. We won't be in the right heavenly order if we're not. Hey Judah, what's verse 14 say? Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Scheming. Saints, what it means to not be an infant is understand your function. Know how to walk in the divisions he's called you to. Starting with your own life, with your home, with the people that are around you. It's not a new revelation. It's building on the one he already gave us. That's how we go from infants that are constantly battered by sin and deceitful men to the warriors and priests of God that we're called to be. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body. Say whole body. Whole body. Joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Every supporting ligament. Not one left out. Grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The whole body, the whole temple that is us is built up by the way we reflect that and apply it in our own lives. Anything contrary is substituting heavenly stratagem for satanic stratagem in your life. We want heavenly stratagem. We don't want to allow satanic stratagem. We're going to mirror the heavens by locking together, learning how to remove the flesh that keeps us from being his temple and living it to the fullest. Man. Hey, Justin, what's Ephesians 3.10 say? This is so beautiful. His intent was that now, everybody say now. <laughs> now. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus <laughs> our Lord. How does God deal with the satanic stratagems? He's got a heavenly stratagem of his own. Yeah. How does he deal with the impure heavens? Well, he's got a heavenly stratagem. How does he deal with the Rephaim and the fallen angels? He's got a heavenly stratagem, and that is us, the church. Amen. When we know our place in the body, we are the heavenly solution. When we are consistent, when we are content and not dissatisfied with our place in the division, we are a part of, a, of the heavenly stratagem. To displace the the 70 lesser Elohim and see the impure heavens purified along the earth. When we build upon the revelation of our fathers, we can complete the promises that were given to them. What God is taking in the heavens, he is forming through us, through the fivefold ministry and the church, which really the church is the one that does most of the work. 
when they work together in their perfect divisions. Hey, Judah, what's 1 Timothy 3.14 say? Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how, God, how uh, people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Saints, together as the pillars and foundation of truth that we form, how ought we conduct ourselves? We are the temple. We are the manifold of his wisdom to the heavenly powers. Saints, it's time that we eliminate fear, that we remove it, that it is no longer a driving factor in how we see the world. Saints, nobody ever wants to say, I'm, I'm scared, I'm shaking in my boots, but all too often it drives the way that we pastor our wives, the way that we raise our children, the way we interact in a workplace. No, we are his manifest, heavenly stratagem. I'm here, I'm on the earth, I am his plan. No more fear. We have to eliminate offense and stinking thinking that cloud our judgment and keep us from having prophetic military insight. Repetitious sinful behavior that makes us liable to destruction. Saints, you are the answer to the problem. But when we get ourselves connected to things that leave us feeling yucky, that leave us broken, we're making ourselves liable to satanic stratagem instead of being the answer to it. But the reality is he made you righteous. And if we stay righteous and refuse to leave it, they have no hold over you. You are the answer. We are the solution to the problem. We have to destroy a competition, a factions between our own tribes. We're one family. We're one house. We cannot have Merites and Kohathites thinking differently about each other. Our job is to truth and love, admonish, teach with all wisdom each other, and be, take the fivefold example and follow it, grow in it, further that revelation. We need to create God's order in our marriages. Yeah. Our marriages are the most important thing that God uses to show His heavenly stratagem. We need to destroy all lack of shalom in our marriages. We need to force God's order in our children. Amen. We have got, <laughs> we've got to have shalom with our wives, and then from there we've got to have shalom with the children. When our children get right, then we can build something. When our children get right, we can pass on revelation. We have to cultivate the call of our natural and spiritual sons. The work won't get done without that. We have to be focused on discipleship. We have to be focused on investing in the next generation. I look at so many coming up, like Chris and Devlin. We have got to be focused on training these men up. Because you know what? God's building his divisions of 24 right here in this church. And then they're going to watch how God did it. And then they are going to go build divisions of 24 somewhere else. We have to further cultivate and build on our father's revelation. No more looking at our father's revelation and thinking, man, I've got a better way. We That's got to die. We have to cherish our Father's revelation. Otherwise, why else would He bring us here? Good word. He brought us here because there is a revelation already given to these fathers, to this body, that God wants you to have and you to grow it. Amen? Amen. New treasures and old. Military intelligence. We have to arrange ourselves in God's priestly and military divisions. One and the same. We have to expect to and actively display sinful rule in ourselves and others. Listen, tonight, what we are stressing is for everyone to know their place in the body. Yes. Now, fear's going to come in and uh, try to tell you that you don't have a place. 
Peter's going to come in and try to tell you that your place is not as good as the next guy's place. You want to know something powerful? God's heavenly stratagem is for you to know where you are in the divisions. And man, I can tell you from experience, I have seen men come into this church and start the process of discipleship. But it's a little bit of a slow process. There's a little bit of a reforming process that goes, goes deep down inside. And that's to get us to walk into holiness. That's to get us to really, really want the Lord more than anything else. But once we go through that process, He starts to reveal to you what your place is in this division. And I'm telling you, I have seen men who have gotten that revelation of their place in the division and they have flourished, thrived, gotten on fire. They have seen into the heavens what God is doing and they know God is doing the same thing in their division. And man, I'm telling you, that is a powerful thing. Our encouragement tonight is to not let fear rule in your minds. To not let competition spring up between you and someone else just because you might be in a different division. Our encouragement to you tonight is to know your place. Know where God has put you. Know the sweet spot that God is putting you in that you flourish. To know your mezuzah statement and walk in it. To know your family banner and implement it. When that happens, there is nothing on this earth that can stop what God will do through that. You know how I know? Because Chronicles is all about it. And the moment that that permanent dwelling was destroyed, it's because they stopped operating in those divisions. You watch, we're going to get there in the, few, in the coming chapters. Saints, there are a couple items that we just want to highlight. And then we're going to pray and close in the victory that God is giving us. Amen. When you hear about the principles that LCM is founded upon, the heavenly pattern, you think just about Elium and the nations, or my brothers need me. Listen, down to the point, the reason we do our services the way that we do. It's not infallible, but I promise you it wasn't without thought, and it's based upon interacting in a heavenly warfare. The areas we get ourselves in trouble with are the things that we think are less spiritual, and they just chafe at us, so we mutter. We're called to reflect a heavenly pattern that fathers that have gone before us that are like David, that have not been entirely perfect in every area, but have had a life that is holistically after the kingdom and are arranging orders and divisions in this room to have his kingdom manifest. We need to recognize the way of life that they live. And I promise it will eliminate those areas of offenses when we see what it is. We are the heavenly strategy. We are the solution. We are the victory of God on earth manifest. We are the ones who will build God's permanent dwelling on earth. We are being formed in his image, and we will be victorious. It's a certainty in his house. We want to pray with you and pray that that victory might be dwelling richly inside of your hearts and cause you to see the world through those eyes. That victory we're talking about is not just your personal victory. We're talking about the victory that we already have as a body. As long as you are in this body, as long as you are working in your function, as long as you are working in your division, heck, you might not even know where your division is yet, but as long as you are following the instructions that the Lord is giving you, you will have victory. It's guaranteed. As long as I've been in this church, we have had many satanic stratagems try to tear this body down, but I have watched. Not one person who has stuck to the heavenly stratagem has ever wavered. Not one. Together, we are the heavenly stratagem. We need to hold on to each other. We need to encourage each other about our divisions. 
We need to carry each other's burdens. Tonight, we need to, we need to be encouraged that we have the victory Amen. in this room. Amen. There's nothing that can stop us as long as we are together. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Have hands with the people that are around you. Mighty kings, Lord, we thank you for the divisions that you've given us. Lord, for the families and family heads that are in this room. Lord, we're asking that you would increase our awareness, Lord, of your heavenly strategy. Lord, of your callings that are upon families in this church. Lord, that all fear would be eliminated. Lord, that we might know and understand your will and run, run after it together. Lord, that your anointing oil would create a unity tonight. Lord, that all fear, that all offenses, Lord, that all chafing edges between one another might be removed. Lord, that we would leave here with a greater understanding of your will and a greater closeness to those you've called us to build it with. Mighty King, you are righteous, you are holy, and you are patient with us. Lord, we ask that you might help us to be sons and daughters that are worthy of your kingdom. Lord, we believe that you are doing it even now. Lord, we walk, walk in it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.